You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Rick Vina. Astounding Stories 10, October 1930, by Various. Section 8. Chapter 11. In the Laboratory. Not until the man's struggles had ceased, and he lay unconscious, panting, and blue in the face, did Dick release him. Then he looked about him. Save for the workmen, he was alone in a rotunda, open to the sky, and, as he had supposed, the whole upper portion of the dome had been flung back, leaving an immense aperture into which the sun was shining flecking the interior with shafts of light. The temperature, despite the opening of the dome, must have been in excess of a hundred and twenty-five degrees. There was nothing except an immense central shaft up which ran a hollow pole of glass, cut off by the invisible paint at the summit of the dome. The inside of this glass pole was glowing with colored fires, and it was from this that the intolerable heat came, though its function Dick could not imagine. One thing was clear. It was growing hotter each moment. To remain in that rotunda meant death within a brief period of time. And there was no way out. Dick glared around him, searching the glass walls in vain. No semblance of a stairway or ladder, even. Yet the workmen must have entered by some ingress, if only Dick could discover it. He began running round the interior of the dome, in the brilliant sunshine, searching frantically for that ingress, and it was growing hotter. The sweat was pouring down his face, beneath the invisible garment. Dick was vaguely aware that the silence switch had been thrown in the room, for his feet made no sound but the knowledge was latent in his mind. Two or three times he circumnavigated the interior of the dome like a rat in a trap. Then suddenly he saw a section of the flooring rise in a corner, and a workman in a blue blouse appear out of the trap door. He stood there, his face muscles working as he shouted for his companion, but no sound came from his lips. He looked about him, and saw the unconscious man beside the window. He started in his direction. With a shout, Dick hurled himself toward him, and he checked himself even as he was about to leap, for he realized that the second workman neither saw nor heard him. Yet some subconscious impression of danger must have reached his mind, for the workman stopped too instinctively assuming an attitude of defense. Dick gathered a dozen links of his wrist chain in his right hand, leaped, and struck. The workman crumpled to the floor, a little thread of blood creeping from his right temple. It was the thing upon which Dick looked back afterward with less satisfaction than any other, leaving the two unconscious men in that room of death yet there was nothing else he could have done. He ran to the trap and saw a ladder leading down. In a moment he had swung himself through 
and closed the trap behind him. The material that lined the walls below must have had almost perfect insulating qualities, for the temperature here was no hotter than in the Bahamas on a hot summer day. Dick scrambled down the ladder and found himself in a machine shop. Nobody was there, and tools of all sorts were lying about, as well as machinery, whose purpose he did not understand. A pair of heavy pliers and a vise were sufficient to rid Dick of his wrist and ankle chains in a minute or two. With a knife he slashed the cords of invisible stuff that bound him. He stood up, cramped but free. He picked up an iron bar that was lying loose on a table beside a machine, and advanced to the staircase in one corner of the shop. As he approached it, another workman came running up. Dick stood aside in an embrasure in the wall, partly occupied by a machine. The man passed within two feet of him and never saw him. Only then did Dick quite realize that he was actually invisible. The moment the man had passed him, Dick ran to the staircase. He descended one flight. He was halfway down another, when a yell of pain and imprecation came to his ears. He knew that voice. It was Luke Evans's. With three bounds, Dick reached the bottom of the stairs. He saw a large room in front of him. No mistaking the nature of this room. It was an ordinary laboratory, fitted out with the greatest elaboration, and divided into two parts by paneling and sight and sound were on. In the part nearer Dick, three men were grouped about a large dynamo, which was sending out a high musical note as it spun. Levers and dials were all about it, and above it was the base of the glass tube that Dick had seen above. In the other part were five or six men. Three of them were testing some substance at a table, Three more were gathered about old Luke Evans, whose silver chains had been removed and replaced by ropes, which bound his limbs, and also bound him to a heavy chair, which seemed to be affixed to the ground. One of the three had a piece of metal in a pair of long-handled pliers. It was white-hot, and a white electric spark that shot to and fro between two terminals close by showed where it had been heated. Dick started. He recognized one of the three men as Von Kettler. He moved slowly forward, very softly, his feet making no sound on the fiber matting that covered the floor. "'Did that feel good, American swine?' asked Von Kettler softly, and Dick saw with horror a red wheel on the old man's forehead. Now you are perhaps in a more gracious mood, Professor. The unknown isotope in that black gas of yours. You are disposed to give us the chemical formula? I'll see you in hell first, raved old Luke Evans, writhing in his chair. Von Kettler turned to the man holding the white-hot metal and nodded. But at that moment, a door behind Evans's chair opened and Fredegond Valmy appeared in the entrance. Von Kettler turned hastily, snatched the pliers from the man's hand, 
and laid the metal in a receptacle. But the girl had seen the action. She looked at the wheel on Luke's forehead and clenched her hands, her eyes dilated with horror. "'You have been torturing him, Hugo,' she cried. "'Freda, what are you doing in here? "'Oblige me by withdrawing immediately,' cried von Kettler. "'Where is Captain Rennell?' the girl retorted. "'I will know. "'He is upstairs, watching the approaching Yankee fleet, "'and waiting to see its destruction,' returned the other. "'You are lying to me. "'He has been killed, and this old man has been tortured.' cried Fredegond. I tell you, Hugo von Kettler, you are no longer a half-brother of mine. I am through with you. Unfortunately, sneered von Kettler, it is not possible to dispose of a family relationship so easily. It is cheap to sneer, the girl retorted, but you sang a very different song when you were in the penitentiary, in terror of death, and you begged me to come and throw you the invisible robe through the bars. You promised me then that you would abandon this mad enterprise and come away with me. You swore it. I have sworn allegiance to my emperor, and that comes first, retorted von Kettler. Oblige me by retiring. I shall do nothing of the sort, cried the girl hysterically. When you used me as a tool in your enterprises in Washington, you played upon my patriotism for my conquered country. I thought I was undertaking a heroic act. I didn't dream of the villainy, the cold-blooded murder that was to be wrought. You've kept me here virtually a prisoner, she went on, with rising violence. An attendant upon that old madman, your emperor, and his sham court, while more murder is being planned. Where is Captain Rennell, I say? She stamped her foot. I demand that he and this old man be set at liberty at once. Hugo, she pleaded, come away with me. Don't you see what the end must be? This is no heroic enterprise. It is wholesale murder that will arouse the conscience of civilized mankind against you. Order that the vortex ray be turned off, she went on, looking through the opening in the partition toward the dynamo. That gas... You cannot be so vile as to send it forth again to destroy the American ships. My dear Frida, retorted the young man coolly, the vortex ray is already charged with the gas, and at a height of twenty thousand feet it is now creating a vacuum that will send the gas upon the wings of a hurricane straight up the Atlantic seaboard. It will obliterate every living thing on board the battleships, from men to rats and this time we mean to reach New York. As for that swine Rennell, he went on, you heard His Majesty announce his intention of sending him back to Washington with the information of our irresistible power. Of course, I know you are in love with him, and that these qualms of conscience are due to that circumstance. But Dick hardly heard the latter part of von Kettler's remarks. Suddenly the significance of the dynamo and the superheated room above had come home to him. He had read of such a project years before, in some newspaper, and had forgotten about it until that moment. By sending a high-tension current almost to the limits of the Earth's atmosphere, the article had said, a vortex or vacuum 
could be set up which would create a hurricane. The tremendous pressure of the inrushing air would make a veritable cyclone which, taking the course of the prevailing winds, would rush forth on a mission of widespread disaster, and on this hurricane would go the deadly gas, infinitely diluted and yet deadly to all life in its infinitesimal proportion to the atmosphere. And the American fleet was now approaching the Bahama shores. Dick forgot Luke Evans, everything else, as the significance of that mechanism in the next room came home to him. He ran like a madman through the space in the partition, and raising the bar aloft, brought it thudding down upon the dials, twisting and warping them. He struck at the hollow pole, but glass or not, it defied all his efforts. He seized a heavy lever and flung it into reverse, and two others. Yelling, the three attendants broke and ran. Out of the laboratory the six came running, collided with the three. Behind them Dick could see Fredegond Valmy, a knife in her hand, slashing at Luke Evans's bonds. Dick swung his bar and brought it crashing down on a head, felling the man like a log. He saw von Kettler pull one of the glass rods from his pocket and fire blindly. The discharge struck a second attendant, and the man dropped screeching, his clothes ablaze. Someone yelled, He's there! Look at his eyes! and pointed at Dick's face. Dick leaped aside and swung the rod again, felling a third man. The others turned and ran. Von Kettler in the van broke through the door behind Luke Evans's chair and disappeared. Dick ran back to where the old man was standing beside the girl. The discarded ropes at his feet. He flung his hood back. Luke, don't you know me? he shouted. It was creditable to Luke Evans's composure that, though Dick must have presented the aspect of nothing more than a face floating in the air, he retained his composure. "'Sure I know you, Rennell,' replied the old man, "'and you and me's going to best them devils yet.' "'But the fleet! It's approaching Abaco!' Dick cried. "'I've got to warn them!' Fredegon seized him by the arm. "'Come with me!' she cried. If they find you here, they'll kill you. Dick hesitated only a moment, then followed the girl as she dashed for another door on the same side of the laboratory as that by which von Kettler and his men had fled. They dashed down the staircase, and a corridor disclosed itself at the bottom. The girl stopped. There is a private way, the Emperor's, she panted. He had it constructed in case of necessity. I got the keys. I was planning something desperate to stop these murders. I didn't know what. Dick seized her by the arm. What keys, he demanded. The key to the place where President Hargreaves is? Yes, but we must get him. Where is he? In a cell beneath the throne room. That's overhead. But they'll catch us. Which is the key? asked Dick. The girl produced three or four keys, fumbled with them, handed one to Dick. This way, she cried. They ran along the corridor. Two guards appeared, moving toward them under the electric lights. At the sight of the girl running and Luke Evans, they stopped in surprise. 
Dick had pulled the hood back over his head. He ran toward them, wielding the iron bar. A mighty swing sent the two toppling over, one unconscious, the other bruised and yelling loudly. Here, here, gasped Fredegond, stopping before a door. Dick fitted the key to the lock and turned it. Inside, upon a quite visible bed, sat President Hargreaves, unchained. He looked up inquiringly as the three entered. Mr. President, said Dick, throwing back his hood, I'm an American officer, and I want to save you. There's not much chance, but if you'll come with me. Hargreaves got up and smiled. I'm not a military man, sir, he answered, but I'm ready to take that chance rather than... He did not complete the sentence. Shouts echoed along the corridor behind them. Dick replaced his hood, handed the keys back to the girl. Take Mr. Hargreaves to any place of temporary safety you can, he said. And Mr. Evans. I'll hold them. It's right here, this door, panted the girl, indicating a door at the end of the passage. The three ran toward it. Dick turned. Five or six guards, with Von Kettler at their head, were running toward him. They saw the three fugitives and set up a shout. Dick had a quick inspiration. He dashed back into the cell, seized the light bed, and dragged it through the doorway into the passage, just in time to send Von Kettler and two others sprawling. He brought down the bar upon the head of one of them, shouting as he did so. Then he became aware that the passage was flooded with sunshine. Fredegond had got the door open. He darted back, passed through in the wake of the three, and slammed it shut. Fredegond turned the key. Instantly Dick found himself with his three companions upon the prairie. Not a vestige of the buildings was apparent anywhere except for the patches of brown earth. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 Von Kettler's End Fredegond took command, repressing her agitation with a visible effort. They cannot break down that door, she said, and they dare not ask for another key. It will take them a minute or two to go back and reach us around the building. But there may be a score of people watching us. Let us walk quietly toward the thickets. If I am present, they will not suspect anything is wrong. But Dick stood still, driven into absolute immobility by the conflicting claims of duty. For overhead, high in the blue, was an American dirigible. And at his side was the President of the United States. One or other of them he must sacrifice. He chose. He ran forward without answering. Those squares of brown earth set side by side were the airplane hangars, and he meant to seize an airplane, if he could find one beneath its coat of invisibility, and fly to warn the dirigible and the fleet. A curious wind was blowing. It seemed to come swirling downward, as no wind that Dick had ever known. It was growing in violence each moment, beating upon his face. As he ran, he was aware of Luke beside him. He heard shouting all about them. Luke had been seen. Not only Luke, but Hargreaves, who was running after Luke, with Fredegond trying in vain to change his intentions. At the edge of the first brown patch, Dick collided violently 
with the wall of the invisible hangar and went reeling back. The shouts were growing louder. Wait, gasped Luke Evans. He had something like a large watch in his hand. He held it out like a pistol, and from it projected a beam of the black gas. Then Dick remembered Colonel Stopford's words. He showed me a watch and said the salvation of the world was inside the case. I thought him insane. Insane or not, old Luke Evans had concealed the tiny model of the camera box to good purpose. As he swept the black beam around him, the whole mass of buildings sprang into luminosity, the figures of a score of men grouped together and advancing in a threatening mass some distance away, and more. Two airplanes, standing side by side upon the tarmac just in front of the hangar, not mere pursuit planes, but six-seaters, formidably armed, with central turrets and bow and rear guns and propellers revolving. Two mechanics stood staring in the direction of the little group. I'm with you, gasped Hargreaves. I'm not a military man, but I've got fighting blood, and I come of a fighting race. Dick leaped and once more swung the iron bar. The nearer of the two mechanics went down like lead. The second, seeing his companion bludgeoned out of the air, turned and ran. Dick shouted, pointing. Fredegon jumped into the plane, and the president scrambled in behind her. The group, dismayed by the black beam which Luke Evans was now turning steadily upon them, had halted irresolutely, but suddenly a head appeared, moving swiftly through the air toward the plane. It was von Kettler, with hood flung back, the face distorted with rage and fury. At his yells, the whole crowd started forward. Dick leaped into the central cockpit, swung the helicopter lever. Something spitted past his face, and a long streak appeared on the turret, where the gas paint had been scored. But he was rising, rising into that increasing wind. He heard a yell of triumph behind him, and that yell of von Kettler's was his undoing. There is the telepathy between close friends, but there is also telepathic sympathy between enemies, and in an instant Dick understood what that shout of triumph portended. He was rising into the line of magnetic force that would anchor his airplane helplessly and leave it to be jerked down and held at von Kettler's mercy. He released the helicopter lever and opened throttle wide. For an instant, the heavy plane hung dangerously at its low elevation, threatening to nose over. Then Dick regained control and was winging away toward the sea, while yells of baffled fury from behind indicated the chagrin of his enemies. He glanced up. Thank heaven the dirigible had not approached the trap. It was apparently circling overhead. Of course, the observers had seen nothing, had no conception that the headquarters of the Invisible Empire lay below and yet it seemed to be drifting aimlessly back toward the fleet, erratically, as if not under complete control. 
and Dick could see the ships about a mile offshore, apparently drifting too. They were moving as no American squadron ever moved since the day the first hull was launched, for some of them, turned bow inward toward others, seemed upon the point of collision, while others were lagging on the edge of the formation, as if pointing for home. Then suddenly the awful truth dawned upon Dick. The occupants of ships and dirigible alike had been overcome by the deadly gas. Dick banked, turned, leaned forward and shouted to Luke Evans, and when the old man turned his head, indicated to him to sweep the tarmac with his ray. The thread of black, broadening into a truncated cone, revealed nothing save the luminous outlines of the buildings. Apparently, the tarmac was deserted. It was queer, too, that the silence of the night before was gone. Dick shouted again, to assure himself of what he knew already, and heard his own voice again. Something had happened, something unexpected, or perhaps the crew of the Invisible Emperor, satisfied with the effects of the deadly gas, had not thought it necessary to go to any further trouble. Suddenly, Dick discovered that he was almost within the circle of the line of magnetic force. Hurriedly, he threw over the stick and kicked rudder. It was not till he was again approaching the seashore that it occurred to him that the force, too, was not in operation. He opened throttle wide and shot seaward. He must ascertain what had happened, and if not too late, give warning without delay. Then suddenly the vicious rattle of gunfire sounded in Dick's ears, and materializing out of the sky came von Kettler's face. Startled for an instant, Dick quickly realized that it was von Kettler in his plane, with his hood thrown back. And Dick realized that his own hood was thrown back. Two faces, and nothing else, were the whole visible setting for battle. But that look upon von Kettler's face was even more demoniacal than before. Mad with rage at the prospective escape of his prey, and infuriated by his half-sister's appearance in the plane, von Kettler had thrown all caution to the winds. In his insane hatred, he was prepared to shoot down Dick's plane, and send Fredegond to destruction with it. If Dick chose to replace his hood, he would have the madman at his mercy, and if he had thought about it, he would have done so, with Fredegond sitting behind him. But the idea did not enter his mind. Consumed with rage almost equal to von Kettler's, he only saw there the face of one of those who had inflicted an unspeakable outrage upon the president of his country. The memory of old Hargreaves, chained before the mock emperor's throne, enraged Dick more than the holocaust of lives taken by the assassins. He shouted a wild answer to von Kettler's challenge as his plane sped by, and banked. At that moment there came a roaring concussion that shook the plane from prop to tail. Dick turned his head. Somehow, President Hargreaves had contrived to get the rear gun into action, and now he was staring at it as if he could not believe that he had fired it. 
and that action hardened Dick wonderfully. As von Kettler's face appeared again, he loosed his turret gun in a sweeping blast, and heard von Kettler's gun roar futilely. Again they crossed each other's path, and again and again, two faces, only able to gauge roughly the position of their planes. Neither man had succeeded in injuring the other. Once old Luke turned his black ray upon von Kettler, and, for a moment, the plane stood out luminously in the blackness. But Dick leaned forward, and yelled to the old man to desist. And once Dick looked back, and saw Fredegon crouched in her cockpit, with eyes wide with terror. And yet he read in her eyes the same determination she had expressed in the laboratory. She was through with her half-brother. All this while the wind had been increasing, making it difficult to maneuver the heavy plane. But now, of a sudden, there came a dead lull, and then, with a whining sound, the wind rushed in again. But this was a wind still more unlike any that Dick had ever known, a mighty gale that revolved circularly, but downward too, like a vortex, catching the plane and sweeping it into an ever-tightening circle. A man-made gale, upon whose wings the poison gas would spread northward again, carrying unlimited destruction with it. Dick fought in vain to free himself. He was revolving as in a whirlpool, and it required the utmost presence of mind and watchfulness to hold the plane steady. Round and round he spun, and then, suddenly, out of the void materialized von Kettler's face. Von Kettler, helpless too, was spinning round upon the opposite side of the vortex. Thus, each airship was upon the tail of the other, and it was a matter of chance which would get the other within the ring sights of the turret gun. Von Kettler was so near that his shouts of fury came fitfully to Dick's ears as the wind carried them. Dick, working the controls, knew that not for an instant could he direct his attention from them in order to fire his gun, and the moment von Kettler attempted to do so, he was doomed. Round and round, struggling, battling in vain, and once more the concussion of the rear gun shook the plane, and a shout from the president reached Dick's ears. Dick turned his head for an instant, long enough to see von Kettler spinning down through the vortex and he was going down a fire. President Hargreaves, no military man, had got him, the second time he had ever aligned a gun barrel upon a target. Bravo, sir, bravo, Dick shouted, and desperately he flung the stick forward and nosed down. No gale, man-made or heaven-made, could carry on its wings three-quarters of a ton of armored turreted airship. Swirling like a leaf, the plane broke through the clutch of the blast. Instantly it grew calm. Outside that vortex, hardly a breath of air was stirring. It was as if the whole fury of the air was concentrated within that circle. The ground came rushing up. Once more Dick tried to head seaward. With flying speed lost, 
he was calculating the exact moment in his downward rush when he could hope to resume control. Would that moment come before he crashed? At less than a hundred feet, he partly regained control. For a moment, the plane seemed to fly on an even keel. Then her nose went down as her speed slackened, and this time there was no salvation. Working desperately to save her, Dick saw the ground loom up before him. He heard the crash as the plane broke into splintering ruin. He had a last vision of old Luke clutching his precious watch. Then everything was dissolved in darkness. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 You Can't Down the Marines He's pulling out of it. Keep it up, Gotch. Dick heard the words and opened his eyes. He stared in amazement at the faces about him. Honest American faces under tropical helmets and above a uniform that he had never expected to see again. It couldn't be real, and yet it was. One word broke from his lips. Marines. He's got it. Don't let him slip, Gotch, grinned one of the friendly faces, and the man named Gotch, who presumably had some qualifications for his job, continued what was meant to be a gentle massage of the nerve centers along Dick's spine. I'm all right, Dick muttered, beginning to realize his surroundings. He was lying on a strip of prairie near the beach, on which the waves were breaking in low ripples about a motorboat that was drawn up. He sat up. The world was swimming about him, but he seemed to have no broken bones. Not far away was the wrecked plain, an incongruous mass of streaks where the fabric had ripped through the gas paint. Where are the others? Dick muttered. Then he was aware of Fredegon Valmy, lying with a white face under a shrub. Her eyes were open and turned toward him. He heard Luke Evans's voice. The old man hobbled round from Dick's back, one arm in a bandage. She's hurt rather bad, Rennell, but we won't know how bad till we can get her away, he said. You've been lying here about an hour since we crashed. President Hargreaves made them take him to the fleet in the other motorboat to see what he could do. He's assumed command. You see, Rennell, that damn gas caught the fleet and put pretty near every man out of commission for good. But these fellows wasn't going to give up, so... Since all their officers were gone, they took two of the boats and their arms and equipment and came ashore to settle accounts. And they won't believe there's anybody on the island or any buildings, and I can't make them believe it. God, Rennell, those invisible devils may attack us at any moment. I don't understand what they're waiting for. Gotch spoke. We know your Captain Rennell, sir, and this gentleman, we know him too but he seems a bit queer in his head, talking of the Invisible Emperor's headquarters on this island, a mile or so inland. The only invisible thing we've found is that piece of a garment we pulled off you. I broke my watch-ray machine in the fall, and I can't make them believe, Rennell. Almost wept old Evans. Tell them I'm not crazy. Dick got upon his feet with an effort, staggered a little, 
then made his way to Fredegond. He kneeled down beside the girl. She was conscious and smiled faintly, but she could not speak. He pressed her hand, rose, and came back. Mr. Evans is not crazy, he said. The headquarters of the gang is over there, he pointed. Didn't President Hargreaves tell you? He was kind of incoherent, sir. The Marines looked at one another, wondering. Was Captain Rennell crazy, too? We've had scouts out through the jungle, sir. There's nothing within five miles of here. They had a clear view through to the sea from the top of a hill. I've been there, Dick spoke with conviction. I must tell you they've got devices that make them practically irresistible. That gas and other things, and they're invisible. But if you boys are willing to follow me, I'll lead you. It means death. I don't know what they're waiting for. But are you willing to follow me? We'll follow you, sir, after a pause, during which Dick read in their eyes the desire to humor a crazy man. Uh, we'll follow to hell, sir, if that gang's really there. Take your arms, then, Dick pointed to the stacked rifles. A minute later, the twenty-odd Marines, forming an open line that extended from one side of the clearing to the other, were on their way toward the headquarters of the gang, and Dick, leading them, though his head was reeling, felt as if his own reason was slipping from him. Had he only dreamed all this? Was it possible that the headquarters of the Invisible Emperor existed on this desolate prairie? If it was true, why had they suddenly become silent, inert? Why had they not long ago wiped out these few Marines? And the gale, was it now sweeping northward on its mission of destruction? Half an hour passed. Then the brown patches of the foundations came into view upon the open ground. Here were the hangars. Here was the central building with the Emperor's headquarters, and nothing was visible. Nothing stirred. Yet at any moment Dick expected the rattle of machine-gun bullets or some more terrific method of destruction. Halt! The line stood still. I am going forward ahead of you. You'll follow at a distance of twenty paces. When you see me stop, feel for the door in the wall, and if I disappear, follow me. You understand? The Marines assented cheerfully. No harm in humoring this poor devil of an officer who had crashed and lost his wits, like Luke Evans, shambling up through the line to Dick's side. Dick advanced. At any moment now the concentrated fire of the Emperor's men should blast them all to smithereens. Nothing happened. And it was no dream, for Dick's outstretched hand encountered the exterior wall of the building. He had gauged his way accurately, too, for a step or two brought him to the door. He stepped inside. He was inside the private door that led to the Emperor's quarters through which he had passed with Fredegond, Hargreaves, and Luke Evans in their flight. It had been broken down, contrary to the girl's predictions, and the deserted passage within was perfectly visible to them all. Stupefied, the Marines bumped and jostled with each other as they crowded in. If they had been anything but Marines, 
their own heads might have been turned at the discovery of this sudden materialization of a building out of nothingness. Being Marines, they only grinned sheepishly and followed along the corridor. The first human being they saw was one of the guards, in a black tunic. He was leaning against a wall, and he was a human being no longer. He looked as if he was asleep, but he was stone dead, with a placid look on his face. Two more dead guards lay across each other, with smiles on their faces, and there was a workman in a blue blouse, who had been in a tremendous hurry to get somewhere from his appearance, and had never got there. He had fallen asleep instead, and never wakened. Dick found a stairway, and led the way up. He thought it ran up to the laboratory, but instead the room into which he emerged was the ante-room of the Invisible Emperor's audience hall. Six dead guards lay in a heap in front of the curtain, and they had died as unconcerned as their fellows, to judge by the pacific expressions on their faces. Dick passed through into the throne room. The Marines behind him, for the first time, uttered exclamations of awe, of pity. The terrific scene that met Dick's eyes would be burned into his brain till his last day. Upon his throne, head flung back, sat the invisible emperor, his features set in a sardonic leer of death, and all about him, some sitting, some lying, supporting one another, were his court, officers in black uniforms with the silver braid, and women in court dress, and all were dead too, but they had not known they had died. They had fallen asleep upon the instant that their own volatile gas reached them. "'I guess that's the explanation, sir,' said old Luke Evans. "'Those devils made the whirlwind and charged it with the gas. But when you reverse that lever, you reverse the process. Instead of projecting the force outwardly, you made a suction, and every atom of the gas that hadn't traveled beyond the radius came rushing back and filled the building. If we'd entered a half hour later, we'd have been dead ones ourselves. But the gas was volatile enough to disperse through the chinks and crannies. Anyway, it's all over now. Yes, it was all over, Dick thought, as he sat in his deck chair upon the cruiser that was bearing him northward. The menace to world government had been destroyed, and with it, all who had been behind it. There would be a new order in the world, a new and kinder government. Men would feel closer to one another than in the past. Half the personnel of the fleet had escaped the invisible death, and only one cruiser and dirigible had been lost in the confusion. There would be a great reception when they put into Charleston. Dick bent over Fredegond, who was asleep in her chair beside him. The ship's surgeon had promised recovery for her. She shouldn't suffer for her half-voluntary part in the business, Dick said to himself. It was going to be his task to help her to forget. End of chapter 13 End of section 8